My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back to another episode of Transmission. So great to have you here with us. Today on the show, I am joined by the incredible Laraji, who uh, I first interviewed in 2015 for Aquarium Drunkard. And uh, around that time, I wasn't especially used to waking up early. And I don't remember exactly what it was that necessitated uh, us getting such an early start for that initial talk. But it was something like I needed to be up and doing the interview at 5 a.m. And uh, I kind of consider it a pretty pivotal moment in a weird way because that talk was so much fun and it blew my mind and I liked the quality of my brain at that early in the morning. I'm not recording this at five in the morning. I should note if I sound fuzzy or less uh, uh, aware than I am describing in this moment. Anyway, Laraji was such a mind-blowing guy to talk to uh, in the pre-dawn. It inspired me to start waking up uh, that early during uh, most of the time to work on things for this show and uh, and other stuff. So uh, it's always great to catch up with him. In the years since, I've had the chance to speak with him a few more times, and we interviewed him about his great public access television show here on Transmissions. But this is the first time that we've done a full-on Laraji Transmissions devoted just to his incredible history his time at Howard University, a historically black university in Washington, D.C., uh, his time playing jazz, rock, and uh, his his entry into mysticism and laughter meditation and, and so much more. Laraji is one of the most interesting guys that I ever get the chance to speak to. His most recent project is a collaboration uh, with Nose, and it's called Circle of Celebration, and you're hearing a little of that behind me right now. Uh, without further delay, let's get into it. This is my conversation with Laraji, uh, also known as Edward Larry Gordon, his orangeness, and uh, it was really a great time to get into it. I hope you are ready for a pretty sprawling conversation. That's the way this one turned out. Thanks so much for tuning into Transmissions. I'll speak with you a little bit more on the other side. Uh, glad to have you with us today. Laraji, it's a treat to have you on Transmissions once again. Welcome welcome to the show. Well, beautiful to be here, Transmissions 101. <laughs> <laughs> Transmissions is a lovely name. I think that's a very crucial name for this age of um boy. Yeah. That's well, that's great to hear. I'm 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 attracted to it too. I I've always loved the notion of you know, radio transmissions on one hand, but I mean 
uh, engaging with work like yours, it, you know, that sort of thing goes much deeper than just, uh, just picking up on radio signals. Yeah. And, uh, talking about transmissions of, um, linear kind and transmissions of the vertical kind transmissions of sending something to and the transmission coming from that thing that's a linear plane the linear field transmission then vertical transmission is simultaneous arrival and departure that the uh, source of the transmission is the same as the uh the reception the receptive space of the transmission so it's simultaneity a oneness mm. uh unison transmission that I say transmission is a message. Vertical transmission is a message and a medium. And then if we use vertical transmission, the language, then our language will automatically be a unison language and our, our life will be a unison language. It will be in unison, mm. using unison language in the vertical, vertical field. So transmission is a very mm. interesting term for me right now. The idea of how do we make a leap how do we grow? How do we evolve? And that, yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a beautiful way to start things. And uh, I don't have any good answers. I don't know how we make a leap or how we evolve, but I know that uh, I, I believe that it's probably possible, you know, if we, uh, if we uh, devote ourselves to that sort of thing. Uh, to, to open up, you know, I wanted to talk about how important and central laughter is to your work. And uh, over these last couple of years, it's been very, very heavy, you know, in our in our society and in the world. Um, I wonder, uh, it can be difficult to laugh sometimes. Have you ever had uh, times of your life where you struggle with, with, uh, with allowing yourself to laugh? Yes, that's a very, very important area to cover, the struggle with laughter. Of course, I grew up in a very laughing community, church community, school community, family community. Laughing was always at the surface, ready to bubble over. Uh, I think one of the times I found it difficult to laugh is during the Thanksgiving dinners when I grew up, because they were usually the time when my mother would uh, take the hands of her little boys around the table, bow her head and pray to God. And then she would always come around to the subject of the husband who had left her. And then she would start crying at the dinner table. And we would be holding her hand, not knowing how to fix mothers. And uh, so a sort of anxiety came over the Thanksgiving <laughs> dinners. And uh, that place wouldn't think of laughing. Although the three, boy right. three boys in the family were a laughing family. That was one time we got solemn. Uh, yeah. So the struggle with laughter is uh, one, we're denying ourselves the touch of bliss. I see when we laugh, our voice sends signals to our nervous system, to our psychology, that it's you're released, you're open, it's safe, you're vulnerable, and it's safe. Uh, you're in the presence of family and tribe, you're safe. And so the ability to laugh, even when it doesn't feel safe, or that we don't feel we're near our tribe, uh, the ability to automatically laugh uh, can require some practice. You know, when you don't feel like laughing, you don't want to laugh, you don't see the psychological uh, justification for laughter at this moment. And surely you can point out 
instances like that along the linear plane, the physical plane, you can point and that you don't laugh when that is going on. You'd be solemn. And so there, there right. are cues that we, we answer in the linear field. You know, this is solemn. This is serious. Keep your head straight. Now let go. Open up. Go crazy. Then come back. Stay centered. Be here. And so there are moments in my life when I've had the signal, stay here. Be cool. There's no time to laugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know what's funny is that I think back to some of the times that I remember growing up in church, right? Yes. Um, some of the 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 most intense laughter that I ever experienced would be like while the sermon was going on, <laughs> and my and my and my brother, my brother would try to make me laugh, you know, because it would be this thing where we're not supposed uh, yes. to laugh. We're not. This is now is not the time for laughing. We're 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 supposed to be serious. We're supposed to be like you said, solemn and in sort of a Exactly. Pious attention. And I would look over at my brother and he would make a face or he would do something, you know, and it was just like, it was impossible not to laugh, you know. And uh, I'll never forget this one time that he did that. And uh, and, and my, yeah, and my, my, my dad kind of looked, gave us a stern look, you know. And then I think my brother made a face and then my dad started laughing, you know. It was just this thing of just like there was no, uh, yeah, so so I know I know what you're talking about. There are times where it's uh it's more acceptable to laugh than than others, but it is such an important part of of you know, I love to see that that you treat laughter as a as a spiritual technology, as something that you can, you know, rely on and it cuts through a lot of the self-seriousness that is sometimes associated with um whatever, alternative spiritualities, contemplative music, all of this stuff. Um I love that that laughter is something that you you uh, you know lean into. When did when did you become interested in laughter meditation specifically? Um, you said a whole lot there that I resonate very Sorry. good. Yes, <laughs> that um, the laughter cuts through the seriousness that I've always understood the uh, value of laughter as uh, as a communal celebration and also as mm. protection and security i know that in my group in a rather stern rough tumble tumble neighborhood in government housing projects in new jersey and so around mm. teenage years when you're out playing you know you'd run into an individual or two who was pretty rough and tumble and were threatening they were pretty <laughs> mean boys <laughs> Yes, sure. I sure. found out that laughter was a way of keeping them off balance and and yeah. and keeping them in the warm space. And he says, um, laughter is the shortest distance between two people. So that we find out that using laughter in the presence of very intimidating forces was a way of opening up the sense that we are one. And so that the sense that we are separate doesn't give grounds for uh, conflictive behavior. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So you recognize that pretty early on that that you could sort of uh, 
yeah. this was something that you could use yeah. to to sort of maneuver maneuver through the world, maneuver through life. Yes, uh, laughter. Our own laughter is infectious, and I would mm-hmm. think that in our primal memory, that when one primate laughed, the others were infected by it, and so that the primate who laughed most and the deepest probably was like a spiritual leader. Uh, in that sense, they could lighten up the clan, the tribe. They could bring the tribe back to a place of inner peace so they could manage the decision-making process. So laughter is a therapy. It's a medicine. It's a gift. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's your, uh, what do you call it, your militia, <laughs> the laughing militia. <laughs> oh. It's in the militia. Militia. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Go forward and laugh your enemy into extinction. (laughs) So, well, because because theoretically they would no longer be your enemy once they recognize that Mm -hmm. that you guys are 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 bound together through that. The extinction of the enemy through laughter, or I say, the laying on of laughter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You um. Your your most recent record uh, was with Christopher Bono and his. Uh, I think is it is it n- n- Noose? Am I pronouncing that right? Or yeah, Noose? this uh, Christopher Bono and R.G. Osiananda. We uh, all work together yeah. to bring back the. And I keep mispronouncing it. He keeps re, re- correcting me. It's Nows, like in Nows. like in Gnostic. No, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Now, um, how did how did you connect with Christopher? Actually, Jason, we connected. Uh, all three of us, well, RJ and myself, were attendants mm-hmm. at the uh, Ananda Ashram, a spiritual community upstate New York, in, near Monroe, New York. We were there on the weekend of doing concerts and workshops, and another fine uh, adept musician Rup Verma was there giving um, a sort of a Hindu musical class. And uh, RG attended the class as did Christopher and they met and they talked and they discovered they had some vibrant life uh, visions uh, that were in harmony. Mm. And so Christopher decided to join us for lunch and we all met for the first time. And Christopher decided to invite us to perform at an upcoming event of his in Hudson, New York, that same year. And there began a friendship. Eventually, Archie and myself, along with other musicians, performed live at uh, Christopher and Katarina's Karina's wedding a couple of years ago. Mm. And uh, we went to a studio one day with Christopher and many of his friends and sort of did a a mindful miraculous musical jam and that was recorded high definition and christopher spent the next four or five years just gently mixing it all together to become the circle yes of celebration Mm. Mm -hmm. well it's a beautiful beautiful record thank Um, you i really have enjoyed I've really enjoyed listening to it. Uh, that was record, so that was recorded upstate as well, right? At Dreamland Studio. Is yes, that- My- that's where you. That's where that performance took place. Took place in one whole day. There might have been uh, sections of music that were re- laid over afterwards, but we were there 
Archie and myself were there for a good afternoon of just mm -hmm. diving in and centering and lifting off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was so those were were all improvised pieces. Is that yes, right? Yes, that's a good way to put it. There was no direct uh, shins outer to do this or go that way. But uh, mm -hmm. one basic fact that always occurs when I'm performing on electric zither, which for this recording session I was, the zither stays in one tuning and unless I bring a second zither. I just had one zither for this particular studio session. And so the key remained the same throughout the entire improvisation. I don't think we took the time to switch tuning. We were just happy with it and we flowed with it. Yeah. So there should be a, like a, a harmonic tonal continuity, a sense of connectedness throughout the entire album, a sense of a circle, yeah. a circle, unbroken circle of harmonic resonance. Do you generally keep the zither in the same tuning uh, from different project to project, or do you switch it up as the, the project sort of necessitates? And how do, how do you decide what tunings you're going to employ? Ah, that's the art of freeform electric zither. Tuning is like painting. You sit down and you tune string by string, or you might start out with a bass tuning like a pentatonic or a minor or a major. A minor tuning would lend itself to meditative, calm, soothing, uh, healing and restorative listening environments. Major mm -hmm. tunings, uh, these here in the West, are for bright, uplifting, energizing, supportive, ac active, uh, active uh, times, active listening. So those are two ways of deciding a tuning if I'm being asked to perform for a specific event, like opening a lecture or opening a meditative journey. So meditative journeys sometimes don't require outer music, but music before meditation can suggest an environment to the imagination, the emotional imagination of the student. Yeah. And in that, you're like painting a picture, a meditative suggestive picture with sound which gives the listener more permission to accept the environment as conducive to their inner meditation. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Y your your last uh, trilogy of albums, uh, Sun Piano, Moon Piano, and and Through Luminous Eyes. The last one, you're playing piano, and it's paired with uh, with your exactly yes. You recorded those on a on a on a grand piano at. First Unitarian Church in, in Brooklyn, does from zither to piano, you know, do you find that you're you're using the same sort of approach regardless of the instrument, or do different instruments provide you with different opportunities or phrasings, you know, to suggest this meditative state and? evoke that emotional uh, imagination that you're talking about does the, does the piano sort of put you in a different place than the zither yes they do the zither is in locked open tuning and the piano mm -hmm. offers the variety of the 12 notes but right i often think of the zither as a liberated piano that the uh 
Mm. It's zither, the auto harp, as some people know it. If you look at it, you can see the semblance of a piano stringboard there. And so I have the, I have right. the liberation to uh, move freely over the strings of the zither, but at the same time, I'm moving over a limited fixed tuning. It's a prepared zither, prepared for electronics, prepared in special tuning. And I can strum, I can do percussion on the electric zither. On the piano, my percussion takes the form as transmission. There's a word again, transmitting my physical activity on the actual keyboard through the hammers, the felts, and onto the strings. Uh, there's a more power in the acoustic piano than there is in the acoustic zither. And the visceral connection, physical connection with a piano is I could say more liberated for body, liberated body movement. And the zither, in the yeah. zither, uh, it's usually in the chest, in the arms, and uh, I would say a more angelic, serene, dedicated, ambient continuum, a pad. And the zither, like, like a pad, a harmonic pad. The piano, uh, it's all chromatic different notes and so to create a pad on the piano i'd have to decision on the fingering for the chord and then somehow get it to vibrate and of course it would have more acoustic presence than the electric zither the electric electric yeah. zither comes across as very conducive to electronic treatments it's fun putting new and interesting treatments on electric zither the piano I haven't explored that much with some synth maybe, but I find the zither, I tend to reach for more psychedelic uh, out of the, out of the box kind of emotional sounds. The piano, I trust the classical sound of the piano. And then, yeah, yeah some electric keyboards too, I trust like a Fender Road song, to learn how to breathe and flow within that language. Yeah, you, you, I don't know if this was before or after your time at Howard, perhaps it was after, but you played in a, in a, in a jazz fusion band, right? Winds of, winds of change. Uh, and you mostly played the roads in that group. Is that correct? Yes. Oh, you've done some homework. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, just, a, just a little yeah. bit. <laughs> wow. Yes. The winds of change. We grew out of Brooklyn, New York. I think I was living in Park Slope or living out in Queens at the time, married with a lovely daughter. Now, that period was a time that um, that a Fender Rhodes was, was a joy to play because uh, mm. and it was a step up from the from the guitar. So I enjoyed the Fender Rhodes and somehow the drummer in this group, Winds of Change, who I would jam with separate from the group, invited me to come to a session of his. And I sat in on the Fender Rhodes. The leader of the band happened to have a Fender Rhodes that he wasn't playing. So I played it and there we had suddenly six musicians. One were five musicians, one was a poet. The Winds of Change was sort of a jazz, avant-garde, exploratory, um, passionate rap 
kind of yeah. journey. And uh, my job was to go to the place where the Fender Rose was and load it onto the truck when we did gigs. And sooner or later, that became rather challenging to deal with a Fender Rose. <laughs> and I, yeah, I love this. There's no better sound, but they're not easy to move. Yes, with the cabinet, and the keys with the cabinet. And so that was part of the discipline and devotion. That's what comes with the territory of playing a Fender Rose at that time. I loved the sound. I would just playing it would take would, would be a transmission on a, on a very celestial and universal wavelength. At that time, were you already interested in uh, you know metaphysical thought or or new thought or any of the things that later became very central to your musical practice, or was this a little before that? This came just about the same time that I mm. was attracted to the study of metaphysical writings and metaphysical thought. New thought, as you put it, was correct. New thought was essentially a teaching how to think new or how to transmit new thoughts, how to uh, use your mind at a different frequency of reality using thought if you could change your thought or the frequency of your thinking you could change the frequency of your mind and the frequency of the way your mind works would attract another different universe as your experience so new thought if you can think a new thought you can change your life change the way your life is coming through you and metaphysical thought just impressed me i just read and went to lectures and it influenced my music in that uh, it, it prepared me for having an inner hearing experience, a paranormal hearing experience. I'm never quite sure the way to name it, but the, yeah. the impact it had on me was it gave me direct knowing. Uh, and and, and yeah. as I talk about it, it gave me the knowing that I do not have the right to talk about it as a past tense experience. <laughs> it's con the continual now. Nos. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, when we spoke in 2015 for Aquarium Drunkard, you told me about that. I think you called it a, a sound vision. Yes. It was a, uh, a vision activated by sound or perhaps it was a sound that was activated by inner vision and opening. And mm. uh, it was during a time when I was exploring deep meditation, music, and uh, investigating the, it's a spiritual relationship of uh, spiritual life and uh, cannabis. And at that time, I felt guided to explore this world of uh, psychedelics on a very surface level and to explore the connection between spiritual practice and uh, the use of cannabis or the use of ceremonial celebrations. And I, sure. yeah, I discovered that my imagination went to places that they don't normally go with just a logical, linear, analytical mind. And that, yeah, right. and that, those places open up worlds for me to gaze into. And in gazing, I was able to transmit what I integrated 
through sound. So there's where transmission. Uh, yeah, yeah. These were these were long form meditations, right? You would meditate for hours, right? From I think you know midnight in onto five in the morning or so. Is that correct? yes? And uh, it was painless because I felt very motivated. Mm. I felt like one my simple early meditations were about twenty one minutes, and the impact that it had on my spontaneous creativity at the keyboard was over the top. And I said, whoa, all the music that I thought I would have to play by reading someone else's music score was already inside of me. And when I use my musical discipline and my spiritual focus aligned with uh, the plant teachers on, on this planet, uh, there was a chemical um, activity that resulted in you see, trans time knowingness, moving, knowing, knowing mm. beyond the movement of time. In other words, in the eternal present time. And, and yeah. that to me is a direct knowingness this way and able to be in this knowingness during performance, whether in the studio or, or on stage or in the healing chambers. Or even in social dance, I like to just be in the know, <laughs> be in the be in yeah. the know wherever I am, and over time, watch how the outer universe changes and becomes um, a willing medium of the extension of this knowingness. That's basically what goes on yeah. in an audience connection with an audience or healing circle is a transmission as a whole feel and the receiver picks it up simultaneously and that's why linear yeah. language can get in the way of transmission and we go into nonverbal yeah. language right yeah sometimes it's 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 you don't you can't put it into words it because you're too busy feeling it it's happening in that re, in that moment i couldn't have said it better yes you yeah, I'm. I'm very curious because when you talked with me about that sound vision, uh, it, it sort of sounded like you know. It sounds like like there was, there were moments before before that sound vision where you did experience like a deep sense of uh, the unknown while playing music. I, I wonder, growing up in in church, uh, I believe you grew up in a Baptist church. Yes. Second Baptist Church of Perth Amboy, New Jersey. Yeah, beautiful. Did, did you ever have? Did you ever have moments? You know, maybe not the same as that sound vision, but sort of like that sound vision when you were growing up. Uh, when you were hearing music in church, did you ever experience anything like that previous to that that first sound vision that really solidified things for you? I could say yes, in the sense that I experienced that same emotional response welling up inside of me, like how mm. the experience of having an outer audio event trigger an inner dormant rush of opening. Uh, okay, yes, yeah. and it would happen in the church, as you suggested, especially with gospel music. Because the gospel choir, in addition to wearing beautiful robes and swaying side to side, get rocking, 
they would get into some pieces that one, the lead singer would just hit a high note intensely and hold it. And the rest of the church would go, ah, <laughs> out. And that one note, I yeah. would notice like on an atomic level, a cellular level, my body would become like a release from one universe. And I would be just dangling as an awareness in the midst of this thing called life, all because of that one note and holding it would, it would change the vibration of my mind, I guess you could call it. Yeah. So you, so you sort of had, as you begun, as you began your own meditative practice and your own sort of spiritual uh, exploration uh, in the, in the '70s, you already had a slight sense, maybe, of of what it what was possible already. You know, uh, if if I'm hearing you right, uh, even in terms of music or in terms of existence, in terms of music, in terms. Well, I guess I guess both, but uh, probably music would be a little bit easier to focus on. Yes, uh, I was imprinted and impressed with the power of sound, mindful sound, nature sound, sound, wherever you find it and however it works for you. But I became more and more uh, an unconscious practitioner of the spirit ah. spiritual power and spiritual life of sound i had a deep respect for it and uh how it affected me affected others it could move us into dance it could shift the sense of the environment we think we're in shift the mathematics of our environment and so that we could think and feel differently i'm just mm. uh awed by the power of sound very early i used it heard it in church sang it in school and a constant it's present in my life growing up. And I guess the power of the piano, uh, the sounding, using sound from a percussion instrument to radiate my own body. So I felt early in my piano studies of playing on acoustic pianos, that the power of vibration to, whether you want to use the word heal or to release or to uh, nurture and massage subtle aspects of our beingness with sound. You're listening to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. The show will resume in just a minute, but first, a brief word from our sponsor. Are you curious about the world, but also want to be surprised and even moved? Do you demand skepticism, but also want to leave space for wonder? Radiolab experiments with sound and storytelling, allowing science to fuse with culture and information to sound like well, music. Join hosts Jada Boomrod, Lulu Miller, and me, Latif Nasser, for an experiential investigation that explores themes and ideas through a patchwork of people, sounds, and stories. You can listen to Radiolab wherever you get your podcasts. In some of the interviews that I've read of yours, you talk about an inner sound current, uh, and, and that's something you've referenced a lot. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what what that inner sound current is or, or how you've come to understand it. Very, 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 very good subject matter. <laughs> and Nadam for me is vertical physics, vertical space time. On mm. vertical space, when we approach it, approach it like a black hole. 
we think we're in these these bodies are we see them with linear light, field light, but as we move into vertical space, um, we disappear because uh, it's like a black hole. And so this vertical space is represented to us. It can't get to it through a thinking mind. I can't tell you about it is because it's vertical time space. So you need to be in vertical mind mathematics. The mind must be functioning as a vertical information processing. And mm. that's, that's yeah. where Nadam, listening to Nadam on your own with a group helps to reformat the mind to dwell in continuous present time, vertical time space flow. Yeah. And so there, the purpose of Nadam, one of the purposes is to give your mind a focus that is not of this world. Give your mind a mm. focus that allows you, while you're in your particular body, your mammalian body, to sort of check in with the transcendental self, the universal self. Nadam guides our emotional memory, you could say, as uh, an eternal field. Nadam helps remind us that right now, right here, we are that. <laughs> yeah. This this yeah, moment, yeah, yeah. yes. And so, and yeah, uh, yeah, and Nadam Nadam is the term that you're that you're applying to this this inner sound current. Where, where does that term come from? It comes from out of the Sanskrit um, culture, the uh, West. Mm the uh, philosophies, the yoga philosophies, the yoga psychologists, pardon me. And it comes out of Sanskrit, if you look up Sanskrit, Nadam's sound current, specifically the inner sound current that we can hear at the end of a yoga class when we're in deepest meditation and might hear the yeah. ringing in the ears or buzzing of bees, but music that sounds that brings us more into the ethereal imagination body. And, yeah. um, and it's very comforting and very soothing of the brain. And the brain gets this sound. If we focus on it, we're allowing our brain to receive a massage. We're allowing some of our subtle mm -hmm. energy systems to relax out of linear field and to feel an openness, an inner openness that we can't, as you say, we can't put it into words. Right. Right. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. When you told me about that sound vision, you know, you, you basically said that that after that experience, you knew what you what you wanted to do. And I'll quote you here. Uh, you said, bring forth a music that would stimulate or awaken a celestial communal consciousness that we're all here one right now. I hear you echoing that r right now. I wonder do you remember the first time after that experience that you were playing music and you felt like you accomplished that or rather that that was accomplished through you? Do you remember, you know, earlier, early yes. you know, instances of, of that happening? I think I know what you're saying. The essence of the experience is that this moment is where the music is happening. It never, it never yeah. happened. Yeah. So it's here. And uh, Nadam as being one of, if not the best, 
means for this community to self-recognize itself, to become audible to itself, and that the, the community will become conscious of itself as a sound, as a communal shared sound experience. And that community is, as you say, it's vertical community. It doesn't have ex yeah. it doesn't have separate external body forms. So it doesn't know itself as a group of othernesses, but it knows itself in this most magical way as this vibrant, all-pervading unity. And so this is this is we are a community of the experiential unity. <laughs> 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 yeah, okay. this way sure. it's now it's a now thing and so we're using sound for its ability to facilitate the transmission of mm. uh, vertical and as vertical information so as we feed on vertical information like our diet what we feed on we become they say if you feed on vertical information you awaken your, your dormant memory of being vertical, transparent, yet the unity. And mm. this, I feel, is a practical but radical possibility for individuals who are receptive to find the doorway back to the unity or forward into the unity is to reformat the mind and the heart as a, vert a vertical yeah. field and how to transmit in vertical language, how to speak, act, and understand. And I feel that is uh, very evident in all the religious and uh, practices that I've seen, religion institutes. There is some place within their practice where the, the practitioner is invited to leave the verbal mind, to enter the silence, the stillness, and just feel and feeling and yeah. using of sound and uh, incense and colors and lights to open our vertical field uh, memory. So because in the vertical field, we don't have to hear lectures about oneness because we will be the, the best lecturer in town. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to talk about it when you're experiencing Absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Thank goodness, too. I get tired of talking about ideas sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I want to feel them. <laughs> yeah. It's a learning exercise you, to attempt to talk about the unspeakable. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I guess is one of the one of the goals with this show to some degree um uh it's not always uh yeah it's not always easy but it it, it can be very very fun um you you uh, so you were in the in the 70s you know uh, post this experience you're you're working in 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 a coffee shop and you're playing your your zither in washington square park um i, I wonder if you could tell me how important hearing the music of people like Yasos and and Stephen Halpern what you know how important was that to you in terms of contextualizing um you know a path forward for what you could do with with your music I'm happy that you focus on that it brings me back to my years of rather deep nomadic existence I was living in a, uh, in the basement of what is now in the Park Slope co-op in Brooklyn, New York. 
And it was an exchange, living exchange, for working at the Aquarian Coffee House on Lincoln Place in Park Slope. And uh, the Aquarian Coffee House had its hours, something like 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. And after 9 p.m., the owner, Warren Fox, would open the place up to late night jam and coffee. Mm -hmm. And so in those years, I was exploring the beginning of the auto harp and piano. And I would practice the instrument, playing it with flute players alongside of drummers. Whatever happened in the coffee house was my opening to uh, that, that kind of freeform exploration. And the context, the performance model was free flow, uh, free associational jam sessions with the auto harp and I began playing on the sidewalks of Park Slope and then eventually on the sidewalks of New York City so this opened up the sound and got me invited around and around and had interesting performance experiences and all of the uh, experiences were opportunities to share my meditative understanding the understanding that we are an emerging community of celestial knowingness. And the music would, as my experiments around the city of New York and even around the world now, is that the listeners, receptive listeners, will make connection with an inner place, whether they call it the celestial body or the belief system that bliss is natural and bliss is here. So music can be take us into a state of feeling validated about inner knowingness and as mm. yeah and yeah. that i would experience people saying to me after a performance where they had gone and it would be some place that they would verbalize in terms of their religious language and i could hear mm. that this inner place in me was uh transmitting in an infectious way information the, mm. the, the coordinates of what is where you are like i don't know if i communicated peace as much as i communicated the coordinates of a piece that's already where you are sure yeah. yeah that's that's beautiful that's beautiful and 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 i i like the idea that 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 as others tried to express to you where they had gone through your music you know, it doesn't sound like you felt compelled to say, here's what was happening. You were, you were more happy to allow them to tell you what was happening. Is, is that, am I picking up right? Because you're saying people were using their own religious language. Yeah, and, uh, they were, valid, they were yeah. validating to me uh, that they were hearing or having the experience that I had when I heard Yasus and Stephen Halpern's music working at that coffee house. Yeah. The music yeah. of music contains some non-verbal emotional message that touched a place within me and said, okay, it's time for you to open up and explore your creative juices sure. in this language, in this more liberal, spacious, ambient language. And I said, yeah, yeah I want to yeah. fly those friendly skies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Did you, had you ever... Um... You know, I've also read interviews where you talk about, you know, the music of Marvin Gaye, the, the music of the Beatles, yeah. you know, so many people 
so many of these these artists that in the in the the mid to late sixties there was just this intense blossoming of an of a, of a cosmic awareness that was being transmitted uh you know through pop music you know rock and roll psychedelic music soul music all of this stuff so do you had you had experiences listening to music like that that also caused you to become sort of aware of this this vertical you know understanding that i mean did did you know did you ever feel turned on listening to you know the beatles or whatever as the psychedelic movement was happening interesting you should bring up the beatles so quickly because i remember laying in bed lying in bed waking up in the morning and with the radio on and the beatles song i want to hold your hand i remember Mm. how i just felt i was drenched in this non-verbal uh excitation joy bliss i don't know what it was but each time i listened to it again and again i would just go to this this uh unfamiliar but familiar joy exuberance and so that beatles number did it to me uh also frankie lyman and the teenagers i don't know if you know that them I want to, yeah. um, why do fools fall in love? Now the lyrics themselves Beautiful. are, they don't, they're not grammatically, uh, they won't win a grammatic, um, Emmy award, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, that didn't make, didn't need to make sense. You could feel what they're reaching for. Sometimes you can probably make more sense by not making sense when you use the nonsensical language. And that yeah. was, another place another one was hearing uh a choir from a black college that was touring in the north and uh, maybe it was morgan state but a choir gave a concert tour and they came to the town of perth amboy new jersey and i went i think the church sponsored them and they were singing negro spirituals and classic musics and there was one piece i don't remember what it was called, but I remember going into an altered state of euphoria as the choir mm. sang this song. And I think the impact of that was transmitted, transmitted to me. And I transmit probably the impact of that experience through my own music, music that leaves the heart feeling reassured that we're in a universe whose intention is beautiful and all embraceive. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's beautiful. How often do you experience those sorts of things uh you know, let's say you're walking down the street and uh and you hear uh, a song on the radio coming out of a shop or something like that or somebody drives by in their car and they've got music mm-hmm. playing. Do you ever have moments where you just catch a melody and and that sort of thing happens for you? Yes, that has happened on two specific songs during my touring time about a few years ago, touring around the world. And during offstage time, just exploring the neighborhood, the shops, and somebody's car radio will be on or a truck van will be stopped at a red light in Brazil. And what comes out was um, this Farrell Williams song, Happiness Is. That, oh yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, yeah, and were, Pharrell, yeah, yeah. That was, I was in Brazil, Ipanema, and Rio de Janeiro, wherever I was, 
but on a sunny lit street in this South American town and the sun is shining and the leaves are blowing and out comes this feral um, song. It just fills up yeah. the entire Brazilian field, just, just going at it. Another time walking down the street in uh, Mission District in California, in San Francisco, and out of one store, the sound comes of hearts. These dreams, and just again, fills up the whole afternoon with this sort of shakti bliss energy. Not knowing what wow. the lyrics really are, but uh, the happiness song, I could say this, the lyrics were in harmony with what I was experiencing. The heart song is their harmonic presentation that was the magic that filled up that evening that afternoon i hope that uh i hope that 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 both uh pharrell and hart have somehow heard about your experiences with those songs that would be a beautiful thing mm -hmm. for them i'm sure and, and we should note that a couple of years ago you you did you sat down with uh, the folks at pitchfork and talked about a lot of this, the the songs that made you, and and people should look that article up for for more on some of these com, you know, some of these these beautiful songs that we're talking about. Right yeah, now. thank you for reminding me where it was. It's on Pitchfork. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> it was on Pitchfork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I read that. I read that one to get ready as well. Uh, um, but yeah, that's 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 so that's so that's so beautiful, and I love I love the idea that these like um. You know that these 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 songs something something is contained in music that, like you said, it 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 goes beyond words. It goes beyond lyrics. You know, sometimes you just you just feel it, and that's the most amazing. That's the most amazing thing, and I love that your music has has helped to deepen that connection for so many people certainly for myself oh, nice. as, I, as i've in, as i've engaged more and more with with your music and and it spans all kinds of collaborators you've worked with blues control you've worked with shazad ismaili who's been on our show as well one of my favorites mm. you know shazad uh You've worked with uh, with all these guys, you know, Dallas Acid, Bad, Bad, Not Good, uh, Carlos Nino, who's been on the show. You work in all of these different contexts, and um, and yet you're immediately recognizable, you know? Uh, there's always, if Laraji's on a track, you know it, you sense it, mm. you know, because you've got this thing that you bring to it. And it's just been, over the last, you know, however long, uh, just so, so... Uh, such a, a a a beautiful thing to learn how to listen deeper, you know, through engaging with work like your own. Um, you know, one of the the things that Joanna Brooke is somebody who I interviewed, the late Joanna Brooke, and she told me, uh, in a, this very like innocent and open way that has always stuck with me about how she listens. To her own music, yes. you know, uh, or she she would listen to it often, and and she said, "I I just love it," you know. Uh, that's is is the same true for you? Do you also listen to your own music and get that enjoyment out of it in a way that doesn't feel like you're not ego feeding? It's something else, right? Yes, it's um. There is the term transmission. So transmission is going on during a performance and recording. And so when I'm listening back, 
immediately or over the next few years to this track, I'm being drawn into that space that of transmission now. And, mm-hmm. and I'm in the now and the new. I'm hearing my music new and fresh all the time. And, and yeah. the way the music is, comes together, it comes together with the permission to be in the new now, be in the new moment mm-hmm. while listening. And a day of radiance impresses me. Every time I listen, uh, I, hear, I hear it in a new way, in a fresh way, in an uplifting way, and uh, a deep, classically gorgeous way. And I hear it not as music that I did, but music as a result of transmission that's going on. So it's a communal, the communal feel, the acoustics of and the mathematics of the communal amphitheater is what uh, I feel. This is an ambient music for a celestial communal field. And so the music is pointing to an otherworldly present time. And so when I hear my music back, I'm not just listening to the music, I'm accepting the invitation to come in deeper to this vertical space time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite notions about music is, is sort of the way that when you tap into a melody, you know, I love the idea that it always has existed and you're just catching it for that for that moment the you continuum know? yes no yeah. ending no yeah. ending or beginning this is the transmission uh, i'm receiving as nadam listening to as nadam i understand the the practicality of no ending and no beginning i understand it is real it's uh, just a matter of is our mind functioning at the frequency to experience it as real and yeah. there, our yeah. inner practice is to move ourselves from non-believers to believers and move ourselves into the corridor where the experience is natural to know mm. and to uh, feel an underlying oneness that's right now active. And uh, the way to get to it is to stop leaving. <laughs> and <laughs> music is a way to help us to stop leaving. Silence is a way to stop. Meditation, the chosen inner work that you do is a way to stay present in your nowness, to stop leaving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Well, you know, it's been such such a pleasure having you on uh to close i wanted to ask uh right now you are clothed entirely in orange the wall behind you is orange uh that beautiful sunny radiance that you've talked about you know is very evoked by your chosen you know uh garb when did you start wearing all all orange and and what was the the reason for it well there was a sale at uh gap all orange sale, and I just <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> that's that comedian yeah. joke right but there. Actually, Again, a jokester. Not too far <laughs> off. It was actually the Hare Krishna temple in New York City that I would frequent, along with other street musicians at that time, because Hare Krishna offered this feast, all you could eat for five dollars, I think, or four dollars, mm. lunch and dinner, and I would go to the restaurant when 
I got tired of playing on the sidewalk and want to take a break, go to the Hare Krishna restaurant there on 55th Street in Manhattan and have this sumptuous meal. To get to the restaurant area of this complex, I had to pass through the boutique. And the boutique offered a lot of spiritual paraphernalia, including orange clothing. And I began mm. thinking, wow, this orange looks like a very trippy thing to do. And I began wearing some orange because I could purchase it at the uh, near the restaurant. It was later on that a uh, spiritual mentor, Sri Brahmananda Saraswati, made the connection, helped me to connect the dots of why I was wearing orange and why I was so focused on uh, engaging in the spiritual study. And he said, you have received an inner initiation and it's trying to surface. And this is the color you wear to represent the sunset on the old way of knowing self and sunrise on the new way of knowing self. It's also a color, mm. color of transformation. And I thought, wow, the only thing he could be referring to was that sound vision that I had. And uh, that was the experience that he said, wear more of these colors so that you can open up and receive the emergence of this initiation. You've had a sound initiation. And uh, there he introduced me to the study of nada, nada, nada yoga. Yeah. And that that inner sound is what awakens us to the vertical field, which remains pretty much invisible to us until we are in the right place to see it. And I think that's where mindful psychedelics come in, meditation and yoga and spiritual study to open us to our capacity to observe and experience a higher frequency of present time. And that I understand our music and our lifestyles are becoming the temple that gives us constant permission to be here now, to feel this nonverbal place. That's beautiful. I don't want to say much more on top of that, but I do want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Transmissions. Laraji, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Jason Woodbury, may the oneness prevail. Peace. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce transmissions. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton, visual design by Sarah Goldstein. Our show is executive produced by Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his weekly Aquarium Drunkard show every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. PST on Sirius XMU. You can find us on social media and Patreon, and of course at Aquarium Drunkard. Only the good shit since 2005. Please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps new folks find the show. And uh, yeah, put a post up about it. If you dig one of the episodes, uh, put it on your Twitter. Put it on 
Instagram, put it on TikTok. I don't I haven't figured out how to put this show or anything to do with it on TikTok yet, but maybe maybe that'll happen at some point. We'll be back next week with another all new episode. I'm joined by world class whistler Molly Lewis, who joins me to discuss her awesome work and uh, how funny John C. Riley is. We get into a lot of great stuff. I hope you will join us for it. Until then, be safe. Transmission concluded. You could know, know about